Welcome to Cobden Centre Radio. I am your host, Patrick Crozier. It is the 17th of May 2012. My guest today is John Butler, Chief Investment Officer of Amphora and the author of The Golden Revolution, which argues that we are shortly to see the return of the gold standard. If I could begin, um, could you tell me a bit about how the uh, book came about? Well, the idea for the book really emerged in the aftermath of the financial crisis, which occurred in 2008 and from which I would argue the world has yet to properly uh, recover from. And it really was meant to address what appeared to be a fundamental failure of the financial system. But rather than merely look at the superficial uh, events that occurred and proximate causes. The book is an attempt to go back, to trace the crisis back to where it truly began. And it truly began with a global monetary structure which allowed chronic, excessive money and credit growth. And that itself was enabled uh, by the departure of the world from the gold standard in uh, 1971. Uh, by executive order of President Nixon of the United States. And so part one of my book is devoted to trying to explain how that history led us to 2008 and leaves us in the predicament that we're in today. Part two is an attempt then to ask the question, what happens next? Uh, How is this eventually going to resolve itself, as these things invariably do? And then part three uh, presents the investment implications thereof. Can you explain a bit about how the, the gold standard uh, works? Because my understanding is that I mean, we would normally say that, that it's where you have a, uh, your money is backed by money in the sense that you can swap, say, um, cash for gold. But it's, it's, it's changed over the years, hasn't it? Oh, yes. There are, historically, there have been many different kinds of gold standard ranging from a so-called pure gold standard where gold really is literally money, and it can even be used in in day-to-day transactions, or at a minimum, you can walk into a bank at any time of your choosing and exchange banknotes for gold, uh, cash out uh, demand deposits for gold coin, uh, and time deposits when they mature uh, would also uh, be paid out in gold coin. So that's a pure gold standard on the one hand and has existed in various places at various times in history. Um, what you had under Bretton Woods was kind of the opposite extreme where gold was not used as money. Uh, it was merely used as a way of periodically settling balance of payments transactions between countries. And so you have these two opposite sides of the spectrum represented by a pure gold standard on the one hand, a Bretton Woods system on the other, and then there were variations in the middle of those two uh, that occurred uh, throughout the latter part of the 19th century and the first half of the 
uh, 20th century. And there's an ongoing debate uh, in academia, which is entirely healthy in my opinion, as to you know, which form of gold standard was most efficient, which was most in the interests of uh, a free society. Um, in my personal opinion, uh, that debate ultimately comes down to whether you prefer a degree of authoritarianism in monetary arrangements or you believe that monetary arrangements are best determined by a more free market in money and banking. I, I prefer the free market approach. Um, but to be fair, the debate is ongoing, and I think it's only a healthy debate uh, that people are having once again about the relative merits of some form of gold standard instead of the purely unbacked uh, fiat money standard on which the world uh, depends today. Right. So we, we went on to a, well, a fiat, fiat standard to fiat money in, in 1971 when the final um, link with gold was, was broken. Um, what happened then? Well, it, it, it's interesting what didn't happen as well as what happened. I mean, basically, the United States got itself into a bit of a pickle in the late 1960s. Um, it was determined in the United States for domestic political reasons that it was uh, desirable not only to spend a very large amount of money uh, prosecuting not only the Vietnam War, but certain other associated uh, military actions abroad in the 1960s. Uh, but the United States was also constructing the internet, uh, sorry, excuse me, the interstate highway system, uh, which uh, at the time was the, was the single largest construction project in world history. Uh, and also, uh, President Johnson uh, initiated a program which he named the Great Society, which was a very dramatic expansion of the welfare state, uh, which had been set up uh, in much slimmer form by uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt during the Great Depression of the 1930s. So the United States, both domestically and abroad, saw a very, very dramatic increase in the size of government, and as a result, the um, need of the government to finance itself, and began issuing an awful lot of debt and creating an awful lot of money to, to finance that debt, and because of the way the Bretton Woods system worked, those dollars were leaking abroad in the sense that European countries, Japan, and a handful of other uh, exporting nations around the world were exporting goods to the United States, and they were accumulating dollar reserves. And you got to a point where the amount of dollar reserves circulating globally was very, very large relative to the U.S. gold reserve, and France was the first, but other countries followed in recognizing that the situation was unsustainable. At some point, it would break down. At some point, the dollar would devalue, and yet gold would hold its value. And so France and other countries began demanding that they uh, exchanged their accumulated dollar reserves for gold. And you reached a point in 1971 where President Nixon decided the game was up uh, and the United States had to choose. Either its gold reserve would be drained entirely uh, or the United States would have to enact uh, policies that were not in President Nixon's political interest. And so he simply closed the gold window reneged on the Bretton Woods obligation. I mean, was, was there an option where he could have stayed on the, on the gold stand by... I mean, it was August 1971 when this uh, happened. Yes. Well, th indeed there was. Uh, there was a very lively debate that occurred in the run-up to Nixon's decision, uh, where on the one hand you had his Treasury Secretary, John Connolly, also the Treasury Undersecretary for Monetary Affairs, Paul Volcker, 
arguing that the United States should suspend gold convertibility and allow the dollar to float, i.e. devalue, relative to other currencies and gold. But on the other hand, you had the hard money camp, which was, uh, oddly enough, championed by Fed Chairman Arthur Burns, who basically argued that it, was, it would be a huge mistake for the U.S. to go off the gold standard. It would lose its international prestige. It would lose international economic power and, by implication, political and diplomatic power. And he said, basically, what you should do instead is you should um, get the budget deficits under control. Uh, you should uh, raise interest rates uh, as necessary to uh, reassure global investors that the rate of return for holding dollar uh, assets was sufficiently high, and that while these things might result in economic weakness, they would maintain what Arthur Burns and the hard money camp believed you know, was the beneficial aspects of a gold standard system. So there was a set of policy choices that could have been made in the other way in favor of hard money. And isn't it interesting that that, that set of hard money policy choices that at the time were opposed by Paul Volcker, in fact, were exactly the set of policy choices that Paul Volcker would himself implement beginning in 1979 when he assumed the Fed chairmanship amidst the dollar crisis, and was desperate to restore confidence in the dollar as a global reserve currency. Uh, now, the thing about that was that he succeeded, as I remember. Indeed, he did, but he succeeded in the curious way of effectively giving the free market the power to determine what interest rates should be. Now, we assume, of course, that central banks set interest rates, and Paul Volcker decided the only way to restore credibility in the dollar was to hand control of interest rates to the market. So he decided, beginning in 1979, although he had to persuade his Fed colleagues to go along with this, but he succeeded, he, he basically said, look, we believe that a stable dollar and stable rates of price inflation uh, will be achieved if we target a low and steady rate of growth in the money supply. And you know, they, they uh, played around with exactly what, which money monetary aggregate and which rate of growth in the money supply was, was the right one. But the point was they, they, they set it down in, in stone. They, they wrote a rule. And they said, you know, we will maintain money supply growth at a rate of X percent per annum. And you, the market, you, know, you tell us which interest rate you believe is compatible with that. As long as money supply growth is too and, and high, how does, we... Yeah, how does, the, how does the market do that? How does the market um, set this rate? Because the, the, the Fed would take the market's cue, because in theory, the banking system, i.e. the financial markets, determine how much... Um, money they want to create through the multiplier, through velocity. And the Fed was basically saying, as long as that uh, money supply growth is above their target, they will continue to raise interest rates until it comes down. And alternatively, if that rate of money supply growth is below their target, they will allow interest rates to decline. So really, they were, they were handing control of interest rates to the market through this money supply targeting mechanism, which arguably traces its way back to uh, Milton Friedman as a way to maintain uh, a stable uh, uh, currency, credibility for the, uh, the monetary policy generally, and by extension, uh, stable uh, price inflation. I see. 
Okay, well, so if that was, if that was the solution in the 70s, why can't that be the solution now? Well, it's a very good question, and I do explore this in my book. That is the possibility that the United States could try to re-implement a, a Volcker-esque money supply targeting policy. And ultimately, the problem that you get into uh, with that is that you're so far along this process of the entire economy having become addicted to very strong rates of money and credit growth that to suddenly target rates of money and credit growth that would imply price stability would be such a shock to the financial system. It would find itself severely undercapitalized. It would be a huge deflationary shock on the system. And while the U.S. was a much stronger economy and was able to absorb that sort of blow in the early 1980s, albeit you know, it was the most severe recession since the Second World War at the time, um, the U.S. financial system and economy generally is simply not in a position to carry that sort of burden today. You've simply got too much debt, which is unserviceable, and which needs to be devalued. The idea that you can possibly stabilize the dollar here is just a non-starter. You need to go through a very dramatic debt devaluation before credibility can possibly be restored. So the idea that somehow you can do it Volcker style by just saying the buck stops here, we're going to allow a punitive level of interest rates uh, you know, from this day forward to, to, bring, uh, to, to bring money uh, supply growth down. Um, it's just a non-starter. It will, it, will, it will just ravage the U.S. banking system, and, and that it's just so politically unpalatable that, that the authorities in the United States will not seriously contemplate that. Right. So um, really the alternative is, is sort of to keep on going as we have been or to see the return of the gold standard. Um, can you tell us a bit about how you see the gold standard coming back? I think it could happen in a variety of ways, and it's one of one of the things I explore in the book is that if you do recognize just how unstable global monetary arrangements have become, and I give numerous examples of that in the book, um, then of course you know that which can't go on won't. You know something has to give, and I, I do explore a range of possible ways in which this could come about, and they boil down to the following: uh, number one. Uh, the United States will realize that it is in very serious trouble and that there's no way out of its current dilemma short of returning to a gold standard. That's one possibility, although I discount it fairly heavily in the book. The second one is that some rogue nation in the world sees a potential advantage for itself directly and indirectly by causing some financial and economic harm to the United States. Uh, by acting unilaterally of its own accord, placing itself back onto a gold standard, thereby deposing the dollar as the preeminent reserve currency. That is, who's going to want to hold unbacked fiat dollars when they can hold backed currency by a credible country, for example, one that runs a current account surplus, has a fundamentally competitive and healthy economy. You know, if the choice is presented to the global investor base in that way, 
then clearly there will be a, uh, a move out of dollars into this alternative reserve, which is backed by gold, and that could destabilize uh, the U.S. financial system. So that's another possibility. Then you have the possibility that multiple countries act in concert and decide that they believe that the current fiat dollar reserve standard is no longer in their best interest, and that if they move together back to gold, that they will all be able to establish greater credibility for their currencies in one go, and trade vis-a-vis each other will be stabilized and indeed enhanced uh, if they all link their currencies to gold in some way. It, it prevents the the prisoner's dilemma problem arising of everyone trying to devalue relative to everybody else. And I take the BRICS as a group of countries that could conceivably... By the BRICS, we mean Brazil, Russia, India, China, and a few others? Well, it's interesting you mentioned that. Uh, Yes, it's those four countries, and a few others uh, include South Africa, and it also appears uh, that uh, South Korea now has quite a... um, quite a cozy relationship with the BRICS, and even uh, Japan and China have uh, been negotiating a a bilateral currency swap arrangement, which will allow them to bypass the dollar. So the BRICS really have become an interesting block in the world of countries that are traditional adversaries. Can you explain that? That that seems weird to me. Why would the Chinese and the Japanese not price their goods in yen or yuan or whatever? Why on earth would they be concerned about the dollar? Well, it's the historical legacy of Bretton Woods. The fact is that even though the United States chose unilaterally to close the gold window and go off the gold standard, the rest of the world just chose to follow. Um, And it was just the fact that at the time, in the early 1970s, the United States was such a large economy still relative to the rest of the world. But that's not true anymore. In the, in the early 1970s, the U.S. economy was roughly a third of the global economy. Today, it's only about 20%, and it's declining. And so you have this historical legacy of Bretton Woods, which meant that the dollar was still the dominant reserve currency, the dominant transactional currency. And so it's only now, post-2008, following the crisis, that countries around the world are waking up and realizing, wait a minute, you know, we, we exist in this fundamentally unstable monetary you know, disequilibrium, if you want to call it that, where the U.S. is inflating like mad, trying to protect its banking system from imploding, and yet we're the ones who pay the price by importing inflation from the U.S., and that, of course, is destabilizing our economies in turn. So one by one, or two by two, in the case of bilateral currency uh, arrangements, you see countries actively seeking ways to bypass the dollar entirely in bilateral trade. And when you have traditional adversaries, such as China and Japan, cozying up to each other in this way, you know, that, in my opinion, is very significant writing on the wall that the days of the fiat dollar global reserve standard are numbered. Right. Um, the thing, this is, there is something I, I'm still a bit confused about. I mean, one of the the reasons why uh, the United States went off the gold standard in the first place was political instability, for want of a better word. It became politically impossible to do. Yes, basically. I mean, the the, the classic view, at least in, in the in the in the mainstream literature, 
Uh, but even in the alternative literature, I mean, to be honest, um, the view about what exactly you know, uh, uh, resulted in President Nixon's executive order to uh, dump the gold standard was simply that U.S. domestic policy objectives and priorities came into direct conflict with external regime maintenance objectives and priorities, and you know, something had to give. And arguably, historically, it's always been like this, that when countries uh, feel compelled, for whatever reason, to pursue domestic fiscal and monetary policies, which cannot be financed domestically, but can only be financed um, using uh, the global capital pool, uh, that eventually you reach a limit. You know, that eventually you max out your credit line. And at, at that point, you have to decide whether you're going to uh, change your policies or whether you're going to effectively default. And the U.S. chose to default on its gold obligations uh, in 1971. Hmm. Do, we think, do we think the BRICs are, are strong enough to, to res resist the same sorts of things? Uh, I mean, in recent history, I mean, the last 20 years, both Russia... And I think Brazil have had very high uh, rates of inflation. Uh, doesn't it require a certain amount of, I don't know, uh, spine uh, to stay on standard? <laughs> well, it's interesting you put it that way. And, and you know, the, the international system is characterized by anarchy. The whole point of international politics, of, of understanding the dynamics of international politics, is to understand that normally, not always, and I'll get to that in a moment, but normally there is no hegemon. Post-World War II, there was a hegemon. You know, the United States, with the exception of the Soviet bloc, the United States really was able to impose a degree of order on the rest of the world, which naturally was suited to U.S. interests. But now we've arrived into a world by just the natural course of events, if you ask me, which, which is increasingly multipolar. Now, it's not that China is suddenly the most powerful country in the world, or India, or Russia, or Brazil. But the fact is, is that the U.S., which may still be the single largest economy of the world, nevertheless, its share has declined so dramatically, and its policy objectives, its domestic policy objectives, are increasingly at odds with uh, the growing, more dynamic portion of the global economy, as as represented by the BRICS and other emerging markets, that you reach a point where you know, there becomes uh, not just a bit of an adversarial nature to this, but the balance of power simply swings the other way, and the U.S. is simply no longer in a position to dictate terms in monetary affairs. And so the U.S. is printing money left, right, and center. I mean, a look at U.S. money supply growth. It's, it's going through the roof. Um, and this is effectively, by virtue of, of the world's reliance on dollar reserves, I mean, the world either has to absorb those dollars uh, and import the inflation that, that it will cause, or the world has to find an alternative monetary arrangement. And so I take it as very, very significant when the BRICS say, point blank in their declaration from 2011, you know, they say that they want the global monetary system to be restructured. And, and they called for it again in 2012. They, in their declaration, they blame 
uh, existing monetary arrangements for destabilizing their economies. And you know, these are diplomatic communiques, and yet the language they're choosing is extremely confrontational. It makes you wonder what's actually being said behind closed doors. So it's not as if all of a sudden the BRICs have become you know, super powerful countries, but they're becoming relatively more powerful. The U.S. is becoming relatively less powerful, and the interests of one side versus the other are increasingly diametrically opposed. Something has to give, and I think that the BRIC decision to create their own IMF and World Bank uh, is the first step towards creating their own currency regime, which if they want it to be credible from day one, is going to have to be backed by gold. Otherwise, they won't be seen as credible alternatives uh, to the dollar. I have, to, I have to say this is, I find this absolutely frightening in a sense, because I, I'm, I'm so used to a world uh, in which America's military is totally dominant. It is. It has the nukes, the, the the aircraft, the tanks, the men, the well, not, not perhaps the men, just the technology, which is so much better than anyone else's. Uh, and the idea that a country like that could um, suddenly find itself not the most powerful country in the world, or certainly not the richest country in the world, is uh, m well, I'm not sure about, about mind blowing, but uh, it's a big change to say the least. Well, I mean, uh, my book does not touch too much on the military aspects of this, with one exception. Uh, there is a chapter in the book titled A Golden Bolt Out of the Blue, where it is specifically a instance in which the conflict, the monetary conflict around the dollar's reserve status and a military conflict actually collide with each other. And the flashpoint is Iran. And what ends up happening is the U.S. finds itself in a position where it has a very, very difficult choice to make. I mean, yes, the U.S. has a first-class military, obviously, a very dominant military, and it shouldn't be any surprise, I suppose. The U.S. spends more on its military than almost every other country in the world combined. So I, that's, that's to be expected. Um, but the U.S. has this choice to make uh, in, in this chapter. It's a hypothetical future scenario, but basically it's based on the idea that if the U.S. really does want to completely isolate Iran from uh, trading with the rest of the world, including, of course, Russia and China and India, it gets to the point where the U.S. literally has to enforce a blockade. And at some point, you know, Russian ships and Chinese ships and Indian ships are trying to run this blockade to take delivery of Iranian oil. Well, I mean, excuse me, but you know, that is, that's a situation which uh, could lead to a you know, very, very unpleasant military conflict for the United States, because while certainly uh, it could... Uh, arguably maintain such a blockade for some period of time, it's difficult to believe that that would not spark certain actions by uh, China and Russia and India to uh, basically protect themselves in other ways uh, and to secure oil supplies in other ways. I mean, let's not forget that you know, the Japanese attacked the U.S. at Pearl Harbor in large part because the United States had embargoed uh, oil shipments uh, to Japan. 
And that included not just U.S. oil going to Japan, but the United States was, had also, for example, arranged that the Dutch East Indies would no longer be shipping oil to Japan and in certain other locations. So all of a sudden, Japan finds it's being embargoed in a way not dissimilar from what the U.S. is doing to Iran today. And, of course, Japan itself ends up lashing out. Now, this time around, if, if you have powers such as China and Russia and India... Uh, unable to secure the resources they want, well, who knows what actions they might take. I don't know, but there could well be a military aspect to it. Now, does the U.S. really, is, is the Iran issue really so important to the U.S. that they're willing to risk a military confrontation with some combination of, of Russia, Brazil, and India over it? Uh, well, <laughs> I, mean, I don't have the answer to that, but uh, one wonders at what point the military supremacy enjoyed by the U.S. Uh, doesn't, in fact, achieve uh, what the U.S. would like it to achieve, uh, and rather just, just stirs the pot in a way which ends up ultimately being contrary to U.S. interests. Oh, golly. Well, um, let's hope it doesn't come to that, at least. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>, indeed. <laughs> um, we, we were talking about um, how a, a gold standard might come about. Uh, what would happen? What happens next? Uh, I mean, the BRICS introduce a gold standard and say, right from now on, we're go only going to price our, our oil or gas in gold, and we're only going to um, going to pay in gold. Well, what, what happens then? Well, at that point, I mean, they kind of force the issue because the BRICS, uh, if you if you extrapolate current trends out just another year or two, the BRIC economies will comprise roughly one quarter. Uh, of the global economy. So you know, it will be an even larger share than the United States. There are also some uh, discussions going on that have been reported uh, in the mainstream press uh, between the BRICS and the oil producers about uh, alternative pricing conventions for oil. You, you mentioned oil. Um, such that they could bypass the dollar for that as well. And so it is conceivable that if the BRICS are prepared to provide um, uh, gold backing for their currencies, and the oil producers are willing to bypass the dollar in the oil trade, well, then you could have a situation where very quickly uh, the uh, oil trade uh, becomes dominated as much by these gold-pegged brick currencies as by the U.S. dollar. And given that oil obviously is the single most important globally traded commodity, you know, very quickly other countries would find uh, that they would have to accumulate brick currency reserves um, in order to provide for their import cover for imported oil. But that's just one way in which this would, this would uh, change the world and transform the world very quickly because, again, if you have a gold-backed reserve currency alternative to the dollar, uh, just basic diversification logic would lead so many countries to say, oh, you know, we've got all these unbacked dollar reserves, but, all, but there are these new gold-backed reserves that are available. Let's at least diversify some of those dollar reserves into these gold-backed reserves. And as that process unfolds, that will place upward pressure on U.S. interest rates. And if the Fed thinks that is not in the interest of the United States and threatens the banking system, then the Fed, fine, they can... They can absorb those dollars. They can expand their balance sheet indefinitely. But, of course, that means that the dollar will decline very dramatically in value. Um, now, that may also suit U.S. interests. They may want to inflate their way out of their uh, very large and rapidly growing uh, debt problem. But at some point, credibility in the dollar 
will risk being lost entirely, and, and the dollar will lis- risk losing reserve status entirely. And at that point, the U.S. will have no choice but to effectively join this move to gold happening globally. That, uh, eventually, they'll have to go along with it. The fact is, is that if any significant number of countries around the world do decide to peg to gold and back their currencies with gold, um, then they will force the issue globally. I mean, this is this is a classic case of of you know good money uh, returning to the system following a period of bad money. There, there's a huge clamor for good money out in the world. There's a huge clamor for good collateral. There are so many bad assets out there, and we see crises left, right, and center demonstrating that. And good assets are relatively undervalued. You could solve this problem. You could rebalance the global economy. You could restore credibility in money literally overnight if you simply were to turn to the gold standard and allow the price of gold to rise to a level which reduced the accumulated debt burden to uh, a, a level that was widely perceived as serviceable. And then we could move on. Oh, sorry, John, I, I, don't, I didn't quite follow that. Um, how come the introduction of, of, of gold as money leads to serviceable debts? I'm not quite clear on that. Sorry, because well, the, gold will have, the, the price of gold will have to be revalued to a level which leaves the debts uh, at, uh, at more serviceable. So, so gold revalues relative to currencies because debts are denominated in currencies. So gold revalues and the real value of the debt falls ah, relative to I gold. See. I mean, that, that, is, that is the simplest way to, to sort out the mess we're in, is, is to accept, uh, basically in the same way, in the same way that you know, World War I was hugely inflationary. It was hugely inflationary, right? It was the most expensive war the British ever fought. And yet by the mid-1920s, for reasons which historians still struggle to comprehend, Winston Churchill, Chancellor of the Exchequer, was just absolutely convinced that not only was it time for the UK to place itself back on the gold standard, but that it should place itself back on the gold standard at the pre-World War I parity rate, notwithstanding the enormous inflation that had taken place in the meantime. Well, but perhaps, so, you could, perhaps you could help me on my history here. I, 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 I seem to remember reading about this a long, long time ago, and the rate he went back onto was, in fact, I believe, the prevailing market rate. Uh, I believe it was the prevailing market rate prior to the UK abandoning uh, the gold standard in 1914. Right, well... well I'll have to look that one up. Okay. In that case, but I, I, I mean, he'd had he'd had varied. Obviously, after the war, it'd been all over the place. But I mean, there was a huge debate about this, and and none, you know, none other than John Maynard Keynes took the other side and basically told Churchill that while going back onto a gold standard was not necessarily a bad idea, Keynes was pro gold. Um, he advised Churchill not to go back on at the pre World War One rate. And unfortunately, uh, Churchill decided otherwise. There was a massive deflation as a result in the UK. By 1927, desperate to try and stimulate growth, Montague Norman traveled uh, to New York to meet with Benjamin Strong, the chairman of the U.S. Fed. Montague Norman and, was the head of the Bank of England. At the yes, time. that's correct. Sorry. He was the governor at the time. So he traveled to New York to beg Benjamin Strong, chairman of the Fed in the U.S., to uh, stimulate 
money growth in the U.S., thereby stimulating credit growth generally and stimulating, uh, basically, demand such that the U.S. would uh, import more from Great Britain. And so in 1927, the U.S. obliged, artificially uh, reduced interest rates and allowed a higher rate of, of money supply growth than would otherwise have been the case, uh, believing that that was in the best interest of the United States because it helped uh, Great Britain. Uh, however, uh, what it did was it reinforced what was already a, uh, an incipient asset price bubble in the U.S., and all of a sudden the stock market just went ballistic. And, of course, by 1929, um, stock prices and asset prices generally ha had risen you know, completely out of line with any reasonable, sustainable, uh, actual underlying income generation for the economy, and it all came crashing down. It all came crashing down, and all the, Europe as well was suffering uh, at the time, in the very end of the 20s and early 1930s, to the point where Britain finally gave up and went back off the gold standard again in 1931, uh, thereby transferring deflationary pressure back across the Atlantic to the United States, where it exacerbated uh, what was already becoming a, a very severe recession and resulted in a very severe depression. Oh, this is this is wonderful. So, so Britain both was it was the originator of the boom and also the originator of the collapse. That's, that's well, quite, I, that's quite I embarrassing. Think it, it, look, I mean, there's plenty of blame to go around here, but mm -hmm. I think the Great Depression is best understood as a long-term consequence of the First World War combined with a handful of significant monetary policy mistakes. You know, that's the way I understand it. You can't expect to fight the most costly, destructive war in world history up to that point. You can't expect to fight that kind of war and not suffer very, very dramatically in the aftermath as a result. And this idea that U.S. demand could somehow be stimulated to ease the pain, you know, it sounded nice on paper and it follows a traditional Keynesian script but in practice, as we can see, it didn't work. It was a disaster. And a bad situation was simply made worse in the late 1920s. It all came crashing down in the 1930s. And then unfortunately, um, from the perspective of, of people who believe in, in free markets and capitalism, it was precisely free markets and capitalism that were then blamed for this series of policy mistakes, something which is, is, is completely intellectually dishonest and unfair, but it was politically expedient at the time, and it's been written up in the mainstream history books that way. Uh, and unfortunately, people today are only beginning to realize that uh, perhaps, in fact, there are some other lessons to be learned from that episode, uh, important lessons to help us deal with what's happening today. There is something that slightly confuses me here because uh, Britain went off the gold standard in 1931, and my understanding is, uh, I could be wrong about this, that in of all the countries that went through the depression of the 1930s, Britain had the the best time of it. it its depression was was shallower; it didn't last as long. And by 1939, Britain was doing okay. Is that? Yes, I mean, ba basically, uh, countries that are willing to devalue um, effectively can borrow growth or steal growth, use whatever verb you want, uh, from other countries. Yes, you're absolutely right. The easy way to get out of a depression is to devalue relative to everybody else. 
the U.S. was the last country to devalue. And so its depression lasted somewhat longer. Uh, Britain was uh, not the first country to devalue. The first countries to devalue were the losers in World War I, right? And you had outright hyperinflation in Hungary, Austria, and Germany, as well as some, some smaller uh, countries in, in, in Eastern Europe. And so, I mean, it was precisely the devaluation of 1931 that helped to relieve the pressure on Britain and allow it to begin to grow again. In the same way that I'm advocating that the world effectively just get over with it, right? They just devalue versus gold, accept that you created too much money and credit, accept that it's not serviceable, and just say, you know what, we're going to put it past us and we're going to move on, but we're going to move on with credible policy. Same sort of thing, devalue but devalue in a way that builds credibility rather than erodes credibility by devaluing your way back onto a gold standard. We're, we're, we're almost out of time now, John. Um, was there anything in the book you wanted to, uh, you haven't mentioned yet, but you, you'd like to? Well, I think th- there are a couple things in the book uh, that I consider to be quite original. I'm hardly the only person who, uh, in principle, believes that a gold standard system uh, is superior to the unbacked fiat money system that we've been on since 1971. So I'm hardly alone in that. I'm also hardly alone in believing that the world as it is financially and the monetary foundations thereof are, is you know, rather screwed up at this point, and that the current set of policy choices being made really aren't addressing the fundamental causes of the problem. I think what makes my book original is that I explore in detail what I believe, you know, based on history as well as theory, uh, are some you know, quite plausible paths uh, that could well take us uh, back onto gold, um, including a game theory analysis where I use the concept of a Nash equilibrium to try and illustrate. Yeah, explain what a Nash equilibrium yes, a, a, is. A, a Nash equilibrium is an equilibrium that can exist between multiple players when those players have different strategies and objectives. It basically means that the the stable Nash equilibrium is the one that best satisfies all players' preferences when they simultaneously take each other's preferences into account. It's kind of a solution to the prisoner's dilemma, uh, as it were. Uh, If you assume that... For example, let's apply it directly to where we are today. In theory, any weak economy that wants to try and stimulate demand has an incentive to try and devalue versus every other weak economy. But the problem is, if everyone devalues versus everybody else, nobody benefits, everybody simply loses credibility. And you you have this race to the bottom where everyone tries to outprint everybody else, and you just end up basically destroying uh, world trade. Countries can't, uh, can't trust one another, and you end up with escalating trade and currency disputes, which will just devastate this highly integrated uh, global economy that you know, provides uh, goods and services uh, in, in a way and in a manner which is just inconceivable, or would have been inconceivable 100 or 200 years ago. Um, so we all benefit from that. We don't want to destroy it, but unfortunately, you know, that's what it would look like. The Nash equilibrium is where Countries realize that if they do start to play this devaluation game, other countries will play the same devaluation game. And so, in fact, the solution is not to devalue versus each other, but rather to seek 
a different type of solution. And again, in my book, I offer up that the most obvious solution is, in fact, for countries to simultaneously devalue not versus each other, but to simultaneously devalue versus gold. And that that represents the future Nash equilibrium that restores order in global monetary affairs. So that's something original in my book. I mean, to my knowledge, I'm the only person to sort of use Nash equilibrium dynamics to try and demonstrate how even the marginal acts of some small countries around the world can influence at the margin the way the larger actors behave and as such nudge the world back towards uh, a gold standard. And finally, the other uh, original uh, element, or I, I would argue very original uh, part of my book, is, is part three, which goes through the full range, or a reasonably full range, of the investment implications of a return to a gold standard. Because you know, we, all of us who work in finance, right, we have our day jobs, and, and, and those of us who think about these things and think about the remonetization of gold and what it implies, you know, many people like me conclude that it implies a much higher gold price. But the implications go far beyond that. Once you're back onto a gold standard, what should be the level of interest rates? How will it be determined? How will markets set interest rates? What will yield curve slope be like? Will yield curves be steep? Will they be flat? How will interest rates and yield curves move with the business cycle? Risk premium for corporate assets for corporate bonds, for equities and equity valuations? How will risk premium be affected? How will valuation models work when you remove the uncertainty around inflation from the equation? What falls out of that equation? How does it change, how does it change investment strategy? How does it change portfolio uh, uh, allocation? Which industries are relative winners from a return to gold? Which industries are relative losers? Which countries might benefit? Which might suffer? In part three, I go through all of that. So any reader who thinks there is any serious possibility that the world could end up back onto some form of gold standard at some point in future, you know, part three is the roadmap for so how uh, for you know how you think about investment strategy under that um, scenario. John Butler, thank you very much. This podcast was brought to you by the Cobden Center for honest money and social progress. To listen to future editions, please check out the website or subscribe to the feed. The music featured in this podcast is from Kopeka by Et.